Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System. Through these podcasts, CAS aims to engage veterinarians, producers, and the public in discussions around animal health and infectious disease as part of work to strengthen animal health surveillance through knowledge, awareness, and data sharing. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. Let's get started. In Canada, we're lucky enough to have some pretty cold winters in most places. That's right, I said we're lucky. Not only is this because we have access to all sorts of fun winter activities, but these cold temperatures force a pause on the transmission of a number of different diseases in our animal and human populations. Certainly, there's some diseases that are more common in the winter months, such as respiratory infections, but several major diseases become much less likely in these colder temperatures. We've already discussed a bit in our first episode about zoonotic diseases, which can be spread from animals to humans. There is, however, a special set of infectious diseases that, while they may not be spread directly from an animal to a human, or vice versa, they can be shared from one individual to another, or from one species to another, via a common vector usually an insect or a parasite. And thankfully, many of these insect vectors do not make it through our Canadian winters. However, as temperatures gradually warm, these vectors and the diseases they carry may become more common in Canada. With increasing temperatures, new species of insects arrive in our country, usually through natural migration of wildlife. Sometimes we bring vector-borne diseases into the country ourselves, either through travel to warm climates for people, or by importation of an already infected animal. If the right vectors are present and are able to survive in the vicinity of that infected individual, there is an increased risk that these infections may spread throughout populations. In dogs, one commonly known vector-borne disease, for example, is heartworm. This disease is spread from dog to dog via a mosquito. In humans, we also know about malaria. Again, this is spread by mosquitoes. We've had mosquitoes, sometimes of legendary size, in Canada for a long time. But there is another type of insect vector that is becoming more common in our country, the tick. There are a number of tick species, and they can each carry and potentially spread a mind-numbing number of disease conditions to us, to our pets, and to our livestock. While this might seem scary, luckily there are experts in both the veterinary and the human medical realm who actively research and monitor these pesky vectors and help to alert professionals in practice to emerging disease threats. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Robin Lindsay, who is a research scientist with the Public Health Agency of Canada, Zoonotic Diseases and Special Pathogens Section of the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. His research team there has been actively involved in tick surveillance across Canada for several decades and generated critical data related to the geographic range of vector ticks and tick-borne disease prevalence. Essentially, he's an expert in all things tick-related, and I'm pleased to have a chance to speak with him today. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Lindsay. It's my pleasure, Dr. Todd, to be here today. Since I have the sense that you have a pretty interesting career, even though it involves bugs, could you tell me a little bit about how you evolved into a professional tick expert in Canada? Well, I mean, like most people, probably yourself included, a lot of what my career shaped into was, was really driven by two things, serendipity and timing. And there's three kind of three main events in my career that sort of led me towards this particular career path of being a tick person here in Canada. The first was after, in around 1989, I'd 
just finished my master's, which was wonderful work. Uh, we're working with Richardson's ground squirrels, looking at the fleas that were established in Richardson's ground squirrel colony. So I had got my first taste of sort of field work, collecting and, and you know, combing the genitals of squirrels with a toothbrush. They seem to enjoy it, and I get a master's out of it. But I was at that transition point, what do I do now? And my uh, master's supervisor, Dr. Terry Galloway, he convinced me that I should apply for an insert grant and maybe do a PhD. And I begrudgingly put in an application, and lo and behold, I got this insert grant. Now I had to find a project to work on. I really liked the squirrel angle. I liked the field work aspect. Terry had colleagues at the University of Guelph, Dr. Gordon Surgener and Dr. Ian Barker, who just again happened to have put a grant application in to study blackleg ticks on the Long Point Peninsula or the Long Point National Wildlife Area. And it was only just discovered that there was a the one and only black-legged tick population in all of Canada was present at that location. Beautiful spot in Lake Erie, south of Simcoe. So I actually contacted them. And again, another piece of serendipity, Kate, was they had actually put in a grant application for the year earlier, but they didn't get funding that year. So they reapplied and they got funding. So if they would have got the grant when they first put the application in, I would have been on the outside looking in. So really, this is, you know, working on Long Point was an opportunity. This was the only location in Canada where these black-legged ticks were known to occur. So I got, a, you know, four of the best years of my life doing field work on the factors that limit the distribution of black-legged ticks. And I sort of finished that PhD, and then another piece of serendipity, a position became available here at the then brand new National Microbiology Lab. And again, they were looking for somebody with field experience. And Lyme disease, of course, was starting to become of greater importance at that time. So I really, based on my field experience and the work that I'd done with ticks, that really landed me the job at the National Microbiology Lab. And that was really where my career in ticks really took off from there. We were Again, very fortunate to be here. I've done, in addition to the work with ticks, we, we get to do all kinds of interesting things. I've been on two Ebola missions, one in Cote d'Ivoire looking for the Cote d'Ivoirean strain of Ebola in birds. I was deployed in 2014 to Sierra Leone to help out with the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Been there to Africa for a Rift Valley fever outbreak in 2007. And been to dengue uh, fever uh, studies in Bangladesh. We did some hantavirus surveys in Paraguay in 2002, and I even got deployed for this silly COVIDness that we're experiencing right now. I was working at a quarantine site when the first group of Canadian travelers, which seems like 10 years ago, arrived in Ontario in March of 2020. We had a mobile lab and we're testing there. So really it was this three little events that led me, like if each one of those didn't occur, I, I'd probably be... Uh, working in construction or some other field of work. I have to say that sounds even more varied and kind of interesting than I anticipated, Dr. Lindsay. I'm happy that it's interesting, but it, it really was a, I mean, I think you just, it, it is funny that, you know, little life turns, a phone call one way, a connection one another way gets you to a certain spot in your career. And I'm, I'm just really quite blessed to have, have uh, been involved with the group of people that I've been involved with and to work on such an interesting group of, of arthropods. So before we get into the serious vector-borne disease information here, just because I'm curious, would you tell me what your favorite bug is or favorite insect and why you think it's so cool? Oh God, Kate, that's hard because there are so many. 
so many cool insects. I really do like the arthropods that have interesting ways. And again, I, I think my preferences for ones that impact impact either humans or, or find their hosts in an interesting way. So there's really a kind of a three-way tie for the ones I find interesting. First of all, the, the human bot fly, which is a myiasis-producing fly, has this really cool behavior. It, this adult fly catches another arthropod, either a mosquito or a tick, and deposits its eggs on that, I guess, vehicle, and then it releases it into the environment. When that arthropod then is finds a host and is it's either for a quick blood meal in the case of a mosquito or attached to the host in the case of a tick, the eggs, because of the warmth of the host, they hatch, and the larvae penetrate the feeding site where the either the mosquito or the tick is feeding. And that, I think, is just so cool. How does that human bot fly know which arthropod to collect so that it doesn't waste its eggs? How does it know which ones will bite, which mosquitoes will bite humans, which ticks will feed on humans? And I really find the same sort of thing with a group of flies that I see from my field work in, in Canada all the time. They're called cuterebrids. They're a uh, myiasis-producing fly. Primarily, we see them in chipmunks and deer mice. But again, the, the female flies lay eggs along little runways in the grass where they know somehow that rodents will pass by there. When the rodents walk through this area, the heat of their body or the CO2 causes the eggs to hatch. And then they penetrate through the skin of the uh, mouse and develop in there for several months. And I've caught small mammals like deer mice in the field with six or seven of these very large larval flies, more than an inch in length, right under the skin. And it's funny to see the rodents run. Maybe it increases their predation. But you catch them three months later and the feeding sites have all healed over and it's really kind of cool. So that's to me is sort of very interesting group mainly because of the, the mechanisms they use to find a host are just so fascinating i'm cringing a bit over here thinking about this bug so i'm going to move on and ask you to tell me a little bit then about your favorite canadian vector of interest which ticks do you find the most interesting and why and which ones are most important or soon to be important in canada mm. well my favorite vector, I mean, again, because it's so interesting and unique, it's a tick. I mean, it, there's only about 40 species of ticks in, in Canada, Kate, as you know. So there's not a lot of diversity to choose from. But I really find the, the spinous ear tick has a very cool life history. The females, the adults, are not parasitic. They don't feed at all. They mate and then produce eggs in, in cracks and crevices. But when the larvae emerge, they climb onto hosts and they're quite a big problem with uh, wildlife in British Columbia where they attack mountain goats, mountain sheep, deer, but they also get into livestock, cattle, sheep and uh, horses and they climb into the ear canal of the uh, animal. They attach in around the tympanic membrane and they go through two, two separate molts. They feed as a larvae, molt to the nymph, feed once as a nymph, molt again to a second nymph, and then that second nymphal stage leaves the host and becomes the adult and repeats that life history. So it's really kind of interesting that they may be they're suspected to be a, a vector of Q fever, but it's more to me the interesting in terms of their unique life history. And again, hard to detect those when they're in the ear canal, and they occasionally get into to people, and I'm sure this is where this, the term, you know, you got a bug in your ear came from because they're in that auditory canal. But I mean, the ones that are my favorite, and obviously I have a, a strong interest in 
the black-legged tick Exoides scapularis because I did my PhD on that particular tick. It is by far, bar none, the most important tick in Canada because of its expanding range. I mentioned earlier that at one point there was only one population in all of Canada. Now they're present in multiple provinces in Atlantic Canada, through southwestern Quebec, northeastern Ontario, northwestern Ontario, and Manitoba. So the, the range expansion has been, you know, sort of phenomenal on these guys, and they have tremendous pathogen diversity. Not only can they transmit the agent of Lyme disease, which is, again, the most prevalent infection that they carry, they're most often infected with that agent, but they all call it, they carry other Borrelia, uh, relapsing fever Borrelia, Borrelia miyamotoi. They carry other strains of Borrelia, but they're less frequently observed, such as Borrelia carolinensis. They carry Anaplasma species, Anaplasma phagocytophilum. Again, probably the second most important tick-borne pathogen in Canada. They can also transmit Babesia microti, a primoplast organism, parasite. And they're, you know, just for good measure, they throw in a, a tick encephalitis virus, Poisson virus, or deer tick lineage of Poisson. So they have this, you know, they've got, they're like a, a microbial sponge picking up and transmitting a number of different pathogens. And of course, they, the nymphs and adults frequently bite people and companion animals. So they bring a trifecta of all problems. Their range continues to expand. The suite of pathogens they carry, believe it or not, continues to expand. And then they are frequent human and companion animal biters. So they really have it all in terms of what's driving tick-borne disease in Canada. Could you then explain a bit about how ticks act as vectors of disease transmission? Like, how long does it take for a tick to expose an animal or a human to a disease? And how does it work exactly? Okay, well, almost all of these, all of the ticks transmit the pathogens that I described through biological transmission. We don't see a lot of mechanical transmission, and we don't see vertical transmission that often either, or, you know, transalvarial transmission where the female passes the pathogen to her eggs and then the, the larval stage. It's, it's almost all done through transstadial infection. So the first stage that comes out of the egg is the larvae. Larvae need it to feed in order to develop to the next stage, the nymphal stage. So if a larva attaches to a, a competent reservoir animal that's infected, the tick can acquire the pathogen as a function of that feeding. And normally that, you know, again, they're going to feed. They have an extended duration of attachment. Larvae feed for three to five days. So they have a tremendous opportunity to, and they concentrate the blood that's taken in. So they take in a large volume of blood from the host. And if the host is infected, they are able to acquire the, the pathogen. It's actually an interesting method of infection that doesn't involve systematic infection of the host, where actually co-feeding of larvae next to an infected nymph on the same animal can result in transmission of those bacteria from the infected tick over to the uninfected tick that's feeding close to them. And these ticks, when you find them on uh, animals in the field, Kate, they're often clumped. They'll find them very heavily distributed around the ears, around the neck, and areas where the, the animal can't groom as efficiently with their teeth. So they're found in these lumps. So you'll find in one sort of communal feeding site, in potentially infected nymphs right next to larvae. So they can acquire it in a non-systematic way. And that really does expand the suite of potential reservoirs because an animal could be a reservoir, you know, simply because it's feeding the nymphs and larvae of black-legged tick, it can transmit a service of vehicle for that transmission. 
Once that larvae is infected, it's going to take at least a couple of months for that larvae to transform into the next stage. So it transforms all of its structures into nymphal structures. But when that tick then molts, it's now, if it acquired infection from that host that it fed on, it's now infected. And again, where these infections are is typically localized to the midgut. Now, there are a few exceptions, like Powassan produces a systemic infection. Many different tissue types get infected, including the salivary glands. So in those guys, transmission can then occur very quickly. This laboratory studies show that as little as 15 minutes of attachment, that as soon as the tick starts to spit saliva into the feeding site, well, because the salivary gland is infected with the, the virus, it gets introduced. Many of the other pathogens, though, they are associated with the lumen or the, the midgut of the, the tick that they're infecting. And that's very much true for Borrelia burgdorferi and anaplasma. The bacteria live within the, the midgut of the tick. And when that infected nymph then finds a host and attaches to that host, now you have the activation of those bacteria in the midgut. They start to replicate. They start to change their outer surface proteins because they're going to go from expressing outer surface proteins that protect them within the tick to something else that is going to be in the, the mammal or avian host they're going to. So they start to replicate, they penetrate through the gut wall, move to the salivary glands, and then they're transmitted with the saliva. That all takes time, that replication, penetration, and movement to the salivary glands. And this is why in most instances, transmission is delayed. It usually takes at least 24 to 48 hours of attachment of the tick before you'll see transmission occurring in the, the next host. So from a human standpoint, this is wonderful. And it's a mechanism we've used to educate the public about risk and how to avoid risk by doing prompt and thorough daily tick checks. If it takes at least 24 hours of attachment, if you check and remove ticks, on a daily basis, you should not become infected. And, and Kate, I'm living proof of that. I've been bitten by hundreds of ticks and I've always do daily tick checks and pull those ticks off. And I don't even have antibodies to Borrelia burgdorferi. So it really does work in terms of that mechanism. So it really is this, it's a relationship between the tick acquiring the pathogen from a competent reservoir, molding to the next stage, and then transmitting that. But typically in a delayed transmission mode. And, you know, it's interesting, not, there'll be subtle differences between what makes a vector and what doesn't. On Long Point, when we were looking at, Long Point is a neat place to, because it has, not only does it have black-legged ticks, there's populations of American dog ticks there. And they tend to feed on the same small mammals that the black-legged ticks feed on. But American dog ticks are not a competent vector because the bacteria, when it's in their gut, believe it or not, when a tick molds to the next stage, the midgut of the tick is actually molted as well. And in American dog ticks, the Borrelia get all captured in the mechanisms or the clot within the, the midgut, and it's not efficiently transmitted to the salivary glands. Whereas with black-legged ticks, they easily penetrate through and move to the salivary glands. So even when they share common hosts, it's this ability of the tick to support the, the bacteria that is the, one of the keys to its vector potential. So are people who have animals more at risk of picking up a nymph than from their own pet? Well, again, you know, dogs and cats are not reservoirs. They don't produce a bacteria that would be sufficient to infect a tick. But they can carry those into, you know, if it's a free-ranging cat, where you take your dog's, you know, you, you know, the dog goes out into the rhubarb and picks up ticks. and They could definitely bring them 
onto your property or into your home before they attach. And ticks really are funny in that they don't immediately attach. They get on a host and they have a whole suite. It takes them hours to decide where they're going to attach. So there's an opportunity for them to be groomed off. There have been a couple of epidemiological studies that have looked at pet ownership and the risk of Lyme disease and really isn't a significant risk factor, but it certainly can result in exposures that would be unexpected. But overall, pet ownership does not increase your odds of getting Lyme disease. And of course, obviously, there's benefits to pet ownership. Your dog is get up for exercise and other things that that would offset even if it was a, a risk factor. So as tick populations seem to move ever northward with our warming temperatures and migration on deer or other animals, why is it important that we monitor for different or new types of ticks and tick-borne disease incidents in Canada? Well, Kate, I mean, again, the black-legged tick is not finished its range expansion. It continues to expand in, into new areas. And we continue to see emerging pathogens in even in the black-legged ticks that we see. So we need to continue to do surveillance to determine the expanding range of the known vectors. There are new and newly described pathogens being detected in these known reservoirs. For example, there are two pathogens that were only recently described in the last five years, Borrelia maionii, which is another uh, closely related species to Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease. It causes uh, Lyme disease as well, but it's found in the Midwest and it wasn't detected until a large uh, survey was done to look at the populations of these things. And there's another Ehrlichia, Ehrlichia it used to be called Ehrlichia muris-like agent, but now it's called Ehrlichia oclarensis for the town in Wisconsin where that pathogen was first described. So the suite of pathogens continues to expand, and we've got another threat on our hands. We have the threat of incursion of ticks from southern portions of our range. So the Asian longhorn tick is a significant threat. It's a species that was introduced, not sure where it came from, but it's certainly present but based on its name in Asia and other locations populations in New Zealand as well it's somehow managed to establish itself through many of the sort of northeastern north central states of the U.S. and its potential to incur into Canada is there I mean we have a similar climate in at least in portions of southern Ontario that could likely support this tick we also have the Lone Star Tick, Amblyoma americanum, which, again, its its distribution has expanded as black-legged ticks have also, and it is near the Canadian border and could incur over. So these new threats, be they pathogens or ticks, you know, really demand that we continue to monitor this situation with, you know, the ticks in Canada. So how does tick surveillance work in Canada currently? Who and what are we testing exactly, and what are we counting and where is this information reported? Well, I mean, again, we've been, like when I started with the government in 1997, there was already a, a passive tick surveillance program in place. And they had been doing small numbers of ticks and doing surveillance for, for pathogens for probably a, at least five years prior to my arrival. So there's been some form of passive tick surveillance in place, but most of it's been focused on black-legged ticks and Lyme disease. Because that would be, you know, that, that was the emerging pathogen at the time, emerging tick at the time, and we've continued to pile on in terms of the agents that we test for that. We'd also do a little bit of work on some of the other ticks. We'd look at Ixoides cuckai, the groundhog tick, and Powassan. 
and we do a little bit of tularemia work with either Dermacenter variabilis species and some of the Haemophysalis species, but most of our surveillance has been around the most important vector, and that's the black-legged ticks. And the passive surveillance has expanded the range of what we test for. Originally, we were only testing for Borrelia burgdorferi, then we added anaplasma, then we added more species of Borrelia, then we added Babesia species, then we added Powassan, especially when there's a, a deer tick virus lineage of Powassan that was out there. So we've continued to add to the suite of pathogens that we test for simply because they seem to be emerging and are worthy of examination. The other surveillance piece that we do and we've done less of but and really is the outcomes of passive surveillance they tell you something about the, the very wide geographic distribution of risk. They tell you where ticks are occurring but they don't tell you if those ticks are established in those areas. It also you know, you can test the ticks and find out what the prevalence of infection is with the different pathogen and gives you some sort of local risk assessment. But that doesn't tell you whether the ticks are established or not. So the, the second part of surveillance is really the active surveillance. So you get a signal from the passive tick surveillance that maybe it looks like there's tick population setting up in a certain area because of the number of ticks that we're getting or even the prevalence of infection can tell you a little bit about that. And again, so the the passive is really meant to drive the site selection for active surveillance. And active surveillance is really just confirms that, yeah, this locality is, is not just adventitious ticks that are maybe dropped into an area by migratory birds from populations in the U.S., but these are local ticks that we can now find in the environment. The active surveillance has been done by, we, we spent a lot of time training people on how to drag sample for ticks. And we do the testing for those. So we probably get about a thousand ticks from across Canada to look at, again, the prevalence of infection. Is that changing over time? And to look and scope out what particular pathogens are present in those ticks. And we now have some groups. The Canadian Lyme Disease Research Network has a pillar in their research agenda that has set up sentinel surveillance sites. So this CLIDERN, as it's called, or the Canadian Lyme Disease Research Network, has set up sentinel sites where they are actually sampling in the environment, getting a sense of which pathogens are present there, and they're going to be monitored over several years to get a better understanding of the transmission dynamics of primarily Lyme disease and other tick-borne pathogen testing. So where do those results go? Well, the results go into, as you probably know, many different peer-reviewed publications. Some of the provinces actually put the data from the passive tick surveillance on their provincial website. So Quebec and Ontario, I know for sure, do a nice job of visualizing that data on an annual basis. But the passive tick surveillance gate is really in a transitional period. When we first started doing it, over, even over the first 10 years, we got very reasonable numbers of ticks to process. I think the first year we did it, we got like 100 black-legged ticks, and I was over the moon with how many we got. But because ticks have now established through those areas that I talked about, you know, they're in Atlanta, Canada, they're in Quebec, they're in Ontario, they're in Manitoba, we have become overwhelmed by the ticks that we get. So, for example, last year wasn't a good example because of COVID, but we would be now pushing typically over 10 to 12,000 ticks coming in. And again, the value of, you know, it's like $10 a specimen to test each tick. And we initially wow. just provided the testing as a carrot or an incentive for people to submit ticks. So not only did you get a tick identification, but we would tell you something about the infection in that tick. Now that's become very untenable. And what happens is 
once ticks establish in a given area, I mean, you see modest numbers. Once the ticks become established, they will. Well, now that they're in the environment, people are people and pets are picking them up, and now they want to submit them. But submission of the tick, it's not. I mean, our surveillance program, we're trying to define the leading edge of the population where the risk is new, not to retest in the same areas where we know they are. So that's become problematic for us. So we're really moving to a system where it was a little bit more nimble, where instead of people submitting the actual ticks, we're moving to an image-based surveillance program. We've been heavily involved with a platform called eTick, or short for electronic tick, where people can submit a image of the specimen that they found, either on themselves or a companion animal, and they get an answer about the tick very quickly. Within 24 hours, they know what the species is, they don't know if it's infected or not, because again, in terms of risk, the risk is, is really three-pronged for ticks. It's what kind of tick is biting you. So if it's a black-legged tick, then it could be Lyme disease. If it's not, then you don't have to worry so much. Has the tick been attached to you for at least 24 hours? Because that's going to determine whether perhaps prophylactic treatment is required, and that ramps up the need for you know the concern the longer it's been attached. And Fortunately, many people are good at finding certainly adult ticks and removing them promptly. So we're also going to add a, a risk measure by looking at the level of engorgement. So not only will you, will you know within a very short period of time whether the tick is a black-legged tick or not, you'll be able to know has it been on you long enough that perhaps a prophylactic dose of antibiotics is worthwhile. So really that's the evolution of things over time. And again, we're trying to move away from providing a diagnostic test uh, on each specimen because, again, it's tremendously expensive. At $10 a tick to do all those pathogens is what it costs. You get 10,000 ticks, you're looking at $100,000, not a very efficient way. And again, the, the information about infection in the ticks is not particularly useful to veterinarians, doctors, or the public. We've kind of created a monster here by providing it. Now they feel they need it. But really, it it doesn't really tell you that much from a diagnostic standpoint. If we use dogs as an example, if you collect some ticks off a dog and you test them and they're negative, well, you can't really say for sure whether that animal has not had some risk. It's obviously been in an area where ticks are present and it's picked those up. There could have been other ticks that you didn't remove that the animal groomed off that were positive that you didn't include in there so it gives that perhaps a false sense of security if the tick is positive well we can't produce a result you know very quickly when we're doing 10,000 ticks so we don't provide information right away but if a tick is is infected well again it kind of important how long was it attached like on a dog well most of them would be engorged for long enough but then it's more complicated in dogs because only a small percentage of dogs actually get clinical disease from exposure to Borrelia burgdorferi. So just because a dog has been bitten by an infected tick, even if it's attached for long enough, does not mean that animal will have clinical disease. So there really isn't an actionable point in there to use the infection data in a meaningful way beyond you know knowing that the animal's been exposed to these ticks and waiting for some sort of clinical signs to show up in order to treat the animal should it be required. This is why we're another reason where we're going towards this image-based program is so that we can get out of the tick testing uh, business. That seems to make a lot of sense, actually, now that you've explained that that way. I have to say I've had clients who have been frustrated, you know, that they could not get a tick tested or that where that previously was available. But it is actually quite interesting to hear the 
the logic progression there. It seems to make sense to me. Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, no one recommends testing of ticks for uh, for clinical management purposes. People want to want certainty. They want to know. But if you think about it rationally, you don't get the kind of information you really want from a tick. I mean, we will occasionally test ticks, Kate, from people in an expedited manner when the tick is engorged, you know, fed for more than 48 hours, and they, they are intolerant of the antibiotics that are provided. So in that case, and on people, it's a little bit easier. I mean, I mean, we're not nearly as hairy as a dog or cat. So being able to, to look over a person and feeling very comfortable, they don't have any other ticks on them. So it's just the one tick. There are instances where there would be some value, but they're very limited in nature. So this disease surveillance or the tick surveillance and this type of monitoring, is this similar for animals and humans? And do the, the groups who you know monitor for diseases in humans that are spread by ticks and the veterinary disease groups, do they collaborate or communicate their findings? Not in a f- as formal a way as you might think, Kate. Of course, from a human health standpoint, we focus on Lyme disease, again, because it's the most prevalent pathogen in ticks. And because of that, we made it nationally notifiable in 2009. Being nationally notifiable increases the odds that, that we're going to get data from each of the provincial public health authorities so we can look at the trends over time with that particular pathogen. So we've developed case definitions and all the provinces agreed to share the data. And now we follow the trends in human Lyme disease over time across all of Canada or the jurisdictions that provide that. There is no formal mechanism in animal health, as far as I'm aware, beyond sort of the uh, the work that's done through this Companion Animal Parasite Council. And it has that advantage of being able to access diagnostic data from companies like IDEX, who provide an annual summary of Lyme disease cases in dogs, for example, across the range of where those tests are being provided. So that, to me, would be sort of the equivalent of the human surveillance for Lyme disease. But I mean, we're kind of separate in terms of how we do. Obviously, we inform each other through peer-reviewed literature. I mean, I read the animal animal health literature. I'm sure the animal health people look at the human literature as well. So there is sharing, but it's an informal sharing of data and trends. And we obviously use ticks in some jurisdictions from companion animals in our surveillance. So there is a sharing of the actual specimens. We are actually thinking, though, that, you know, anaplasma, babesia, and poison should be under nationally notifiable notification as well. You know, anaplasma for sure is, is, is the next most prevalent pathogen in ticks. It's found in every province where Lyme disease is found. So we're actually in the process of making all three of those diseases uh, nationally notifiable. So anaplasma phagostophilum, Borrelia microti, and Powassan encephalitis virus are going to be part of national surveillance. They probably would be right now. If COVID didn't rear its ugly head in the March of 2020, we probably would have those as nationally notifiable uh, diseases. So it would give us a better opportunity to track those as well. So one thing I I honestly don't quite understand is why diagnosis of a tick-borne infection, such as Lyme disease, in humans, it seems to be so complicated. In dogs, for example, we have several diagnostic tests available, and we have some algorithms that we can work through to determine 
if a patient that was exposed to a tick needs treatment. And in other species, such as cattle, there's certainly tests for individual tick-borne diseases such as anaplasmosis. But it seems every time I hear something in the medical news about Lyme disease, it seems to be a contentious diagnostic process. This might be a bit out of your wheelhouse, but I wondered if you have any idea why this is. I definitely do. I definitely do. And I mean, what's very interesting is, I guess to start with, you know, bacterial serology is challenging. And serology is the only standardized method that we have to, you know, it's the only standardized diagnostic test that we have for detecting evidence of exposure to Borrelia burgdorferi. Interestingly, we use basically the same tests that are used in in dogs, but modified slightly for use on humans. Obviously, the, uh, the antigens might be slightly different, but we do follow a similar algorithm. And unfortunately, because of the bacterial serology, being a fairly insensitive in early disease, we realize that there are limitations to just how efficient the performance of those tests are. You can draw a sample too early and get a false negative, and antibodies take several weeks to emerge in a person. So there are limitations of the sensitivity of those tests in early disease. But fortunately or unfortunately, as a person goes through, you know, from a localized infection at the level of the skin through disseminated disease into the different tissue and organ systems, whether it's cardiac, neurological, or arthritic systems, the performance of those tests improves. So we have in later disease, the sensitivity and specificity of assays is much better. The testing is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it tends to be better as we go along. And I think the case would be true from a dog standpoint as well. Uh, some of those same things would apply to dogs. We have a bit of controversy, though, because the dog owner won't usually say to you, well, I really think my dog, I'm going to seek a second opinion. I think my dog does have Lyme disease, and I'm going to go have it tested somewhere else. That doesn't happen in the veterinary world too often, I don't think. People often develop ideas about what is infecting them, and they are certainly entitled to seek a second opinion. And we have some diagnostic laboratories, most of them in the U.S., that use slightly different testing algorithms, and they tend to produce different results on their tests than are provided by the different provincial laboratories here in Canada. Those same labs are known to produce high rates of false positives. But if you think you have Lyme disease and, and you go to one of those tests and you get a, a positive result, which doesn't match the Canadian ones, there's where you get this controversy about which one is correct. The person is suffering from some condition, and in the estimations of the Canadian medical system, it, it isn't Lyme disease, but they're given this alternative laboratory result, and they choose to believe the result from the for-profit laboratory versus what's provided from the Canadian medical system. So that controversy over which of those results is accurate and how many people are actually missed is what you're reading about all the time in, in the newspapers. But fundamentally, we run the same diagnostic tests as that are run in, in the veterinary world. We just have a little bit more of a, a challenge with interpretation of that results and, and whether people want to believe the results that are provided to them. Fair enough. And I think we've all seen, you know, any person or when your pet is ill with a condition, you know, you really do have that drive to to want to obtain that diagnosis, uh, especially if you're not feeling well. So certainly the motivation can be understandable. We want to diagnose as many people as possible with the correct condition 
But to us, specificity is as important as sensitivity. So we don't want to say somebody has an infection when they don't, uh, as much as we want to make sure that we are capturing as many as the true cases as possible, right? So we have to balance that sensitivity and specificity because, again, if you you say somebody has Lyme disease and they don't, well, whatever is making them sick, they're not addressing that, so they're not going to get better in the in the long term. But I mean, Lyme disease is a is a challenging bug. Even the clinical presentation, the diagnostic testing, the spectrum of disease itself is is very challenging. So it it is something that we're going to have to continue to work at to get better at. I think Canadians are fairly aware of the risk that's posed by tick-borne diseases, such as Lyme disease or Powassan virus, for themselves. And they also seem pretty knowledgeable about the health risks for their pets. Many dog and cat owners are now talking to their veterinarian about tick prevention, medications for their animals. And I know there has been an educational push from human health professionals to teach people how to be tick smart when they're out hiking or spending time in areas where ticks may be present. That said, though, I think knowledge of tick-borne diseases or risks for our livestock, such as cattle, sheep, goats, or horses, I think that's less common. Grazing ruminants seem to be naturally doing some of the walking that appears in those tick-dragging surveillance activities you described. So I didn't know if anybody has thought about screening ticks from our grazing animals as sentinels for new ticks in Canada. Clearly... Those animals are part of the, our passive tick surveillance. I mean, we do get occasionally, not very many, but we, I mean, horses would be the thing we get, you know, uh, the livestock animal that we get the majority of our submissions from. We occasionally get them from sheep and much less so from cattle. So people do talk about them as, you know, like you say, they're, they're wandering around the field. Why not use them as sentinels? But there are some logistical challenges with checking these animals for ticks. But I think... If you look at the Asian longhorn tick, which has a propensity to attach to livestock, prefers mammals, you know, grazing-sized animals over most other things, would make sense to use them as a sentinel and collect ticks from them. There really isn't, you know, beyond talk about it from the agriculture side, is trying to use them as sentinels. Putting it into practice is a bit more challenging, simply because you have the, the issues of, you know, are you going to go wrestle, you know, some steer to try to examine it for, for ticks and pull some of them off? That's a considerable challenge. I know we use grad students for all kinds of things, but, I mean, there's some practical limitations to using them because you have to physically examine them for the ticks. I'm actually involved in a study with Catherine Rochon. She's a, a professor at the University of Manitoba, where we're going to try to combine the risks that ticks present not only to livestock themselves, but also to the livestock workers. So we're going to be assessing the relationship between tick abundance on pastures and on cattle and look at that in terms of risk represented to the cattle as well as the livestock workers. So we're going to go out here in Manitoba starting this spring and collect ticks in and around pastures where animals would be allowed to grow. We're also going, so we're going to sample those pastures May, June, and October. And we're going to also radio collar cattle to see what the, and do visual examinations on them and remove ticks after, you know, at different strategic points during the season. And we're going to have livestock workers also submitting ticks for testing. So we're going to get a bird's eye view of what the risk is to the cattle to become infected or to be infested and then infected. And then what's the risk to livestock workers. So I think 
that's a bit of a unique study, I think, in the Canadian context. It's really using, as you suggested, Kate, the, uh, the catalyst potential sentinels. We hope, I mean, that study's only starting this year, but perhaps we can come back at another time and talk about that study in more detail. That sounds pretty interesting. I'm sure lots of folks will uh, be excited to hear kind of what you find out. If ranchers or farmers are finding ticks on livestock currently, should they be concerned? Uh, and should they be submitting these to a lab somewhere or getting the ticks or their animals tested or screened for tick-borne diseases? If so, do you know of any like diagnostic supports in place for this type of testing? Well, I mean, I think when producers see ticks on animals or see a new tick, a tick that they haven't seen before, or they see ticks for the first time when they've never seen them before, they should minimally have them identified. And there are a number of localities where that could occur. Obviously, they, you know, if they made special arrangements, we'd be willing to take them here at the National Microbiology Lab to look at them. But I mean, I would encourage them to, to look at a provincial university often has extension programs where identifications can occur. In Western Canada, I know the Agriculture Canada Research Group at Leftbridge would take specimens and, and would be able to identify those. And of course, we're very interested in this as a function of the potential incursion of Asian longhorn ticks into Canada. So minimally, if, if a producer sees a tick that they've never seen before, or they see a tick that we've provided sort of most wanted posters of, of the Asian longhorn tick, if they see one of those, then definitely have it submitted to one of those, either University or Agriculture Canada, or even National Microbiology Lab for possible identification. That's the first step. Pathogen testing would have to be considered on a case-by-case basis. And again, Asian longhorn tick, if it incurs into Canada, the tick itself is a big enough concern. You don't have to necessarily worry about pathogens associated with that particular specimen. And there are a small number of companies that will, like IDEX, I know they, they test ticks that would come off animals for a fairly broad spectrum of, of uh, animal pathogens. But the diagnostic testing that might be available would have to, you know, you'd have to look at your the provincial resources available in each jurisdiction to see what's available. But I think the key is find out what the heck it is, what is on your livestock, and even knowing the identification is going to be able to, to allow you to make decisions of whether those ticks, uh, you know, whether control is, is warranted on that livestock commodity to protect your investment. So we haven't spoken too much then about prevention or treatment for vector-borne diseases. This is a pretty complex area, but since ticks are insects and we want to protect ourselves and our animals from infections, medications though that we use for tick prevention aren't specifically targeted to act against only one insect. Some can have effects on other types of insect populations as well. Over time too, we can see resistance to medications that can occur too. So is there work being done to develop new types of tick-specific insecticides or preventative medications other than the ones we have right now? And how do we protect other insects or pollinators in our environment while addressing the increasing risks of ticks and their associated diseases? Prevention is one of the areas where I think we're doing a, a good job. There are a lot of tools in the toolbox uh, for prevention of tick bites. And because there, you know, it's biological tr- transmission occurring, whether it's in a companion animal or in a person, if you don't get bit, you don't get sick. So, I mean, there's a whole suite of behaviors and proven methods like the tick checks and wearing appropriate clothing for humans that are available that aren't going to have an impact on the environment. 
there are actually more options for companion animals for tick reduction than there are for people. I guess the problem with the human side is compliance. We have known and proven strategies that reduce the risk of being bitten by a tick, but relatively few people want to participate in those behaviors. But I mean, simply appropriate clothing, tucking your pants into your socks, wearing insect repellents on the exterior of your clothing are going to be proven ways that you can reduce the probability that you're going to be bitten by a tick and infected. We just had a new, for the first time, license in Canada last year for methylene-treated clothing for the control of, first for mosquitoes, but also for ticks. So the application of this product, it's embedded factory impregnated into clothing, and it will kill and repel ticks and mosquitoes for as many as 80 washes. That's not really going to have an impact on non-target arthropods, and it's going to do a fine job of reducing the risk for people. And again, on the companion animal side, we've got a suite of either topical acaricides and systemic acaricides that can kill ticks that feed on animals before they've engorged and potentially transmitted. There aren't that many available products for tick control sort of an environmental tick control, say you want to reduce the numbers around your property. There are relatively small number of products that are available. And again, they're mostly just for perimeter treatment of vegetation. I mean, obviously they're going to be non-specific, but if you're just treating a, a five or six foot swath around the edge of your property, I mean, that's that will kill some non-target insects, but it's, it's not going to make the bees or beneficial insects go extinct in the area that you're treating. There are really aren't that many tick control products that target ticks in the environment that are super innovative. There's the uh, deer treatment systems that are available in the U.S. We're actually testing their efficacy in uh, a tick population in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. And what these deer bait stations are is just essentially that. They're sort of a makeshift trough with a couple of paint rollers on the end. And when the deer come to remove the corn from the uh, trough, they have to put their head through these rollers that are treated with permethrin. The idea here is that you, because deer carry the vast majority of the adult ticks, you can suppress the adult tick populations by treating the deer in such a way and therefore potentially reduce the risk in the environment. Now that is a little bit more broad exposure of permethrins in the environment, but it's still targeted to a particular species and should have a minimal impact on non-target organisms. We're also doing a study on the use of the equivalent of fluorolanner, or that's the systemic insecticide that kills ticks when they feed. And we've been putting those out in rodent, for rodent uh, bait stations to see if we can reduce not only the uh, number of ticks in the environment, but if we can reduce the transmission dynamics. And again, there's a potential there for some of that product to get out into wildlife, especially those uh, small mammals are eaten by other mesopredators, for example. But overall, that's a low risk and kind of an innovative way to, to try to reduce risk of exposure in the environment. Unfortunately, neither of those strategies are licensed for this particular use pattern in Canada. So although the technology is there, we're still evaluating whether it works. And again, even if it works wonderfully, we'd have to find a company who's willing to register the product for that particular use pattern, take on some of that risk, and sell it in the environment. But I think there are certainly communities that are interested in it because of the growing number of ticks 
it's not a straightforward thing. It's more of a community use product rather than something that an individual could use to, to control the ticks on their property. And one thing, Kate, that we could really use, and it's in the offing, is a vaccine. And I was never a big proponent of Lyme disease vaccination simply because you know, this, this is trick, you know, black-legged ticks are not a one-trick pony. Often, you know, black-legged ticks carry more than just Lyme disease. But the fact that we really have a hard time chopping the top off of this epidemiological curve and getting the case numbers down through the, the strategies we do have really means that if we could have a vaccine for against Lyme disease, we could really reduce the burden of disease in the environment even though we we would probably still see, I mean, we definitely still see the other tick-borne diseases. I think it's just imperative more so than ever to reduce the, the burden of Lyme disease in the community to try to get a bit of a, more of a handle on that. And there are at least a couple of vaccine candidates that are in clinical stage three trials. So maybe in the next three to five years, we might see a vaccine available for use in Canada once again. And that, I think, would be a bit of a godsend. That really does sound promising. It's nice to hear that, that that is, is to come. As a veterinarian, I have to say, I, I do find it confusing just following all of the tick resources that are available. There seems to be some from, you know, drug companies. There's certainly some from various government and university organizations. It just seems they change very frequently. Which tick websites or apps do we need to keep at the top of our resource list? Well, as I mentioned, it's certainly within the human health sphere and related to companion animals as well, is this sort of transformation of passive surveillance or modernization through the use of eTIC. So if I had to pick a single website that allows you to look at, you know, the track, the, the submissions that have come through citizen science, that would be the one that I would keep high on my list. There are a number of apps that can help you identify ticks. I think the eTIC folks are working on just such an app that will allow you to identify a tick based on an image. And again, we were kind of lucky in Canada that we really only have six or eight species that bite people, and almost all of those would bite companion animals as well. So it wouldn't be hard to, I mean, I, I personally don't find it hard to, uh, to tell them apart just because there's only eight types of something. It's relatively easy to do, but those apps would definitely help. eTIC would be the one that I would put high on my list. So just to wrap things up, Dr. Lindsay, I thought I would ask you perhaps what you're most excited about on the frontiers of tick research uh, in this next year. Well, I'm going to be just happy to get back to it. I mean, COVID has really thrown a wrench into our activities here. Again, we wanted to, to expand the suite of pathogens that are nationally notifiable so we'd be able to track those in a more thorough way. We're actually looking at a, a diagnostic approach here that we may be changing to modifying the, the way that we do diagnostic testing. So historically, we would screen with an enzyme immunoassay and then follow it up with Western blots. But some interesting research from the U.S. and one study that we piloted here in Canada demonstrated if you use two enzyme immunoassays instead of a blot, you can actually pick up more of those early infections that are the ones that we have the most difficulty picking up with the standard two-tiered testing that we use. So I'm very excited to see what that looks like when we start testing people with the two EIAs over the Western blots to see if we can improve our sensitivity and, again, get people treated as early as possible in that process. 
Thanks so much, Dr. Lindsay, for this bit of TikTok with me today. For those who are interested in learning more about tick-borne diseases and surveillance for these diseases in our livestock, our pets, or in humans in Canada, we will share some of the resources and links that Dr. Lindsay has mentioned here on our website at cas.ca. And for our listeners, you can subscribe to our podcast on Podbean or find us on your podcast app of choice for future animal health insights. Thanks for joining us. Once again, I'd like to thank the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System for their support of the Animal Health Insights podcast. CAS is an initiative of the National Farmed Animal Health and Welfare Council, and it has broad-based support from both livestock sectors and from government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals, and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri-Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal, provincial, territorial initiative.